Two Poor Bastards contains explicit content and drunken ramblings. Listener discretion is advised. You are listening to Two Poor Bastards' second take. We're going to be covering... In the Mouth of Madness, part of the Apocalypse Trilogy. It's the last yeah. of the Apocalypse Trilogy movies. This is Eric. This is Kyle. And we're going to be uh, dissecting the movie. I, myself, it's been probably more than 10 years since I saw the movie. Uh, I recently had my first viewing of the movie. Which is extremely surprising to me. And you know what? To me, too. So I don't know what I was doing. So thank you for making me watch it because I should have. If for so the the uninitiated about the Apocalypse trilogy, it's a trilogy of films from John Carpenter that are actually not chronological in time frame, but a trilogy of films that um, encapsulate a certain theme. And obviously, the apocalypse is that theme. So, part of that is, the theme is destruction of free will, the futile attempt to delay or escape the inevitable, uh, the danger of ignoring a particular danger, or the danger of exploring that particular idea, uh, here's a quote from John Carpenter himself. It says, All three of these movies are in one way or another about the end of things, about the end of everything, the world as we know it, but in different ways. Each of those things is a kind of apocalypse kind of movie, apocalyptic kind of movie, but a very different take on it. So I would say that each of the movies, so it's going to be The Thing, it's going to be the Prince of Darkness and In the Mouth of Madness. Each one explores a different aspect of human psychology or our our negative tendencies and explores it, essentially. So we did In the Mouth of Madness. In the Mouth of Madness is really the story of how, what if... You were the only sane person left alive, and would you be sane or insane at that point? Which I yeah. feel at, at at what point does it change from one to the other? Right, and so that movie examines what is reality. Does it matter? Is the collective idea of sanity more important than actual sanity? And then ultimately the the futile attempt to resist the change of the mass will. When does majority decide what is one thing or the other? I will say that there are very similar traits to I am legend to I uh, in the mouth of madness. So I didn't watch that movie. Well, it's actually based on a book. I know that, but like, yeah, I was, I Don't legend, watch it. I'm not going to watch it. I would, yeah, I would say watch any of. I think there's three versions. 
put into film based on the original novel. And wasn't Omega Man one of them? Yes. Okay. Got it. I have seen that one. Charleston Heston. Yes. So it's really it's an intriguing concept where essentially you are of a particular common mindset. We all agree that there's a baseline for reality and throughout the story the baseline of reality starts to change and you were left out of that change. You're fighting that change. So in the, in the case of I am legend, I believe it's zombies and it'd be a Charleston Hester, Will Smith. They're trying to fight that change. Will Smith, Will Smith and the inevitability of change. So it's fighting against the fact that, things change it's it's a futile attempt to try and keep things the same so uh i would say that in the mouth of madness is a along the same themes but takes its own more uh like horrific take on it so it's got sam neill charleston heston who is also in the mega man so that's kind of a sam neill my boy Sam Neill's the man. What a great actor. A whole bunch of other people that I, I don't know. Uh, this is the first movie that K&B did for uh, John Carpenter. And then from that point, they did the rest of his movies. And they're probably now most known for The Walking Dead. But they did... I from, did not know that. Yep. They did From Dust Till Dawn. Ooh, that's a good one right there. Evil Dead. That's and a good Army one right there. That's so a good one right there. So they're, uh, you know, they're a really well-known, well-respected effects company, and they that was their entry to work with John Carpenter, and um, they did some shit. Like, it's... So having not seen that movie in a long time, like, there's distinct memories that I have, flashbacks, one of the scenes is towards the end of the movie where you get flashes of these grotesque evil things that you don't really like it's really quickly cut very cthulhu-esque um creatures indeed yes. so the in the mouth of madness is, is a play on at the mountains of madness which is hp lovecraft so well, I guess that explains it, right? That Back explains in there. it. So it's a Lovecraftian story. So what do we mean by Lovecraftian story? So it mostly means lots of tentacles and ancient unknown evil. And you're fucked. You're fucked. It's There's no racism involved in this, but it's ancient evil from a, a black pit of unknown despair and... It's being unleashed onto the world, and it plays. It, it some ways it's a uh, Edgar Allan Poe sort of messing with sanity. What is what is it to be sane? Uh, sort of theme. So it's a little bit of a mix of both. Yeah. Where does sanity start and insanity start, Begin. and where does each one end, and what's where does the other one end? So it. It has a classic. So, like, if we start from the beginning, it is a classic uh, John Carpenter intro, which is to mean that like he writes the music to this. Fuck and, yeah! <laughs> and 
It's amazing. So here's one of the things I wanted to add to you. Do you actually mentioned it in a different episode, but do you think John Carpenter is the father of Synthwave? I father, godfather, whatever. Yeah. I mean, he he started a certain thing with his own style that uh, is now being carried on. And and he he really did it right. Eric and I got the chance to see John Carpenter live last yes. November. And it was uh, for fans of the 80s, fans of John Carpenter movies, fans of synthesizer-driven music. It was a great experience for both yeah. of us. And we had a fantastic time, and it was awesome. The thing, what I didn't realize, so we'll we'll talk we'll spend a little time on that what i didn't realize like when i went to it like the full breadth of that experience of listening to that music live being played by actual people yeah it was like i was and the man the man himself there it was it was a fucking great experience like i feel like like a notch on the belt of life that is one of the things that I put on that belt. As children of the 80s, that really fucking did a thing. That and, was definitely a and thing. And what I never, I didn't even, like, begin to, like, anticipate the effect that listening to that music live would be. Like, yeah. the intro music, essentially, of all your favorite John Carpenter movies is really what it was. Here's the thing. Here's the movie you love. Here's the song you love. Here's the person you love who brought both of them together. And you know what? Like, when I go to concerts, there's a range of things that happen. It could be a terrible experience with the crowd. It could be a terrible experience with the band, like Megadeth. Um, <laughs> it, it's, there's so many things that could go on, but there everything went right for that show. It, yeah. was, it was perfect. It was... I. Man, it was such a well-executed nostalgia boner explosion for myself. And, and like I like I was just waiting for like Prince of Darkness, Prince of Darkness, like and they fucking played and everything. I'm like, the thing, the, the thing, thing, the thing. They live. They li- yes, they live. Like it was a, the effect, assault on precinct 13. Yeah. And that's the thing is like it was so surprising like feeling those tones through actual instruments as they were originally written to movies that you love. Like I was so surprised how much I enjoyed it. Like I really wasn't expecting to be like, this and is it, a great, life you know, experience. and it wasn't a cheap show either. And we were no. like, fuck, but it was after everything worth was it. said and done, it was so worth, worth it. it. So worth it. So, you know, John Carpenter is not just a, you know, a director, he directs, he writes, he does his music. He is an entire experience upon himself. So he's the complete package. He is the total package. He does this shit right. So he does these, this tonal thematic trilogy called the apocalypse trilogy. And in the mouth of madness is the last of that trilogy comes out. I think it's like 91, 91 is when it came out. And uh, it feels a lot like of its time, 91, how it's shot, the characters, ages of the actors that are in it. But then again, it still feels like classic John Carpenter because that music 
could straight up be 80s music. You know, I watching the movie myself, and of course this was the first time for me, I don't feel like it was like too dated. Or no, anything. but like of it, course, you know, while we were watching it, I was making comments about the big double-breasted suits, <laughs> suit coats and all that thing, but yeah. like I don't feel like it really shoehorned itself into one thing. No. No, I agree with you, but like because it's John Carpenter and he has a particular aesthetic like watching it like i just was sucked right into the john carpenter world so the movie stars sam neill baller and, and uh he is an an insurance investigator who is investigating the disappearance of sutter kane and he's trying to suss out if this is a legitimate disappearance or not so he is a cynical man of the world who's seen it all who can't be impressed or bothered by anything but is real good at finding the shit yeah this dude could sniff out a lie a scam like no other and he enjoys it he enjoys even if it's someone he knows it doesn't matter to him which yeah they said you know in the movie like he's even gone after friends people he knows and so what's you know, clearly this is a cynical man, a man of the world, a modern man, I think is the allegory for what it is, the modern person. And it's a slow descent into the picking apart of his world. And it's it's not done in an all-out one-shot. It's throughout the entire movie that his sense of reality is being questioned and him fighting against what his perception of reality is. So he starts a journey with a, I, and I don't know her name. It's fine. Uh, wall-eyed girl. Wall-eyed girl. She's, she has a very ethereal, otherworldly presence to her. And they're going to go and try and find her. Now, he gets the idea of where to trace him from. It's because he notices a pattern and all the covers of all his novels that it turns out to be a map of Connecticut. And this previously fictional town turns out to be a real town, a, a real town, town that actually exists. Indeed. So they're going to go or does it or does it? And they're going to go find this particular town. And I'm not really sure. Like, is it like, to, Oh, never mind. The plot, the story is, they're trying to get the material. The, the The book company is really only concerned about getting the book called In the Mouth of Madness. They've got a, a chapter or two. Say the, the complete draft of the novel. And so the, they're only concerned about um, getting this so they can publish it. They've pre-sold all of the particular the novels they've sold the movie rights they just need the damn finished product so they can sell it so get out there find this person get it let's get this shit done and that is the the and the 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 driving motion of the movie so uh it starts out a little road trip with him and wall-eyed woman and through this they kind of like take turns like they're just kind of like going on random roads trying to find this town. So they're taking turns driving and the wall-eyed woman 
starts to hallucinate, is it because she's overly tired? Because she's driving in the middle of the night? Or is it because she has entered the mouth of the madness? Indeed. Directly in the center of the mouth of madness. And but is it her descent. You know, whatever it may be, we do find ourselves in the town that we're looking for. Yes. So there's an interesting... That apparently doesn't exist, according to people. According to people. But because of the logical brain of Sam Neill, he says, you know what? There's plenty of towns that have never been documented. Of course, this is before Google. Google Maps. There's no Goog map. There's no Googs. You can't ask the Googs where something is. So it's off the map, but it's completely plausible. Grid, they say nowadays, I suppose. Off the grid. (laughs) So... He's very confident that he's going to be able to find it. He knows exactly where it is based on the clues that Sutter Kane left in his artwork for his previous novels. And do you feel like Sutter Kane? I know they in the movie they had mentioned Stephen King. I feel it's the stand-in for Stephen King. Or okay, Clive Barker combined. Okay, perfect. Because that's what I was going to get at. Okay, continue so, on. So Sutter Kane is established as a. Stephen King, Clive Barker, horror writer-esque author. The book covers are very classic, like Stephen King, 80s novel covers. Like, they're to the T. I feel like they're very, like, almost Dragonlance-y. Very much so. Which, we should do an episode about Dragonlance books, (laughs) because I fucking love that shit to be edited out. Uh, But, you know, the book, covers the artwork styles very much Stephen King of a particular era style of art, which I love. They're, they're very well done actually. So they're taking turns driving and through this, they're experience, they're starting to experience some weird shit. So they experience a kid on a bike in the middle. This is the one thing I don't understand. The kid is driving in the middle of the road on a cruising bike where there's no street lamps or anything. How do you see where the fuck you're where going? Where the fuck is this kid going? So she drives. Again, I I don't remember if it's, the, if it's Sam Neill or if it's the wall-eyed lady initially. I mean, it was them. both, really. So they drive past. The next time, driving the exact same bike, it's an old man. They drive past. Very old, wild-haired, like Einstein-looking... Yes, makeup effectsy old person. The next scene is the wall-eyed lady fucking smashing into the old man. They get out. Sam Neill's awoken from his deep slumber, and they go to investigate the crime scene. She checks him out, and the old man says, I can't escape in a very youthful voice. Hey, there's something weird going on here. Sam Neill goes back to the car. And then the next scene is the old man just getting up on the bike and going the other way. He just gets right on there and fucking goes after being hit. I guess you didn't fucking hit him that hard, I guess, because he was sleeping. Then they get back on the road. They get back to it to find Sutter Kane. And he falls back asleep. She's starting to feel some weird hallucinogenic shit. And she can't see the road ahead of her. There's no reflective stripes anymore. And she looks down 
and there's thunderclouds underneath the fucking car. And she's like, what the fuck? We're in the air now. We're in the air. And then all these weird flashing, quick cut scenes happen. And like shit's being flashed to her. And by the time, and they're in a tunnel. Sam Neill is still sleeping the whole time. She ends up in fucking Knob's End or whatever the right fuck it is. Right there in the town. During the middle of the day. So it's at night. And then they just abruptly end in the middle of the day. And he goes, oh, I guess he found it. And she had just come through like a traumatic experience. And she goes, I guess so. And there it is. They're in the town. So they go in. They find, they find the town. It's abandoned for the most part. And she start, you don't know if she's hallucinating this or if this is really going on. But she hallucinates children chasing a dog. What the fuck? Hallucination or not. Or not. What is reality? I don't know. I don't get it. What is the nature of reality? He's still very cynical at this point. Sam Neill is like, you don't know what you're talking about. You're just tired. They go to their hotel, and she's freaked out because she's like, this is directly out of the book. And he's like, nah, not really. I skimmed him. I skimmed I I I got them on uh you know book on tape. And so they go in, they meet the lady, and she's freaked out the whole time. Wall-eyed lady is like out of her fucking gourd because she recognizes not only the place, the characters, and the painting. They look at the painting. This. So effectively, they have entered a Sutter Kane book because everything that's in the book, they are now experiencing. Indeed. She's fucking freaked out. He's cynical as ever. So they get the room. They go to the room. They have the discussion. He goes, this can't possibly be the book because it would be out this window. And she goes, you didn't read closely enough. It's actually out the east window. And they see this beautiful Byzantium church in the middle of nowhere. And that's where I think you get the first hint that he starts to question the Shit nature. Shit starts getting real or unreal. Unreal. Starts getting surreal. So they go decide to go to this church in the middle of a field, in the middle of fucking nowhere, which looks like it should be in the middle of Istanbul because it's got those fucking weird little... Yeah, this is a very uh, extravagant church to be in the middle of nowhere. And she's able to describe the exact description, not only of the building but of the mural that's on the building front. And then out of nowhere, well, first she hallucinates again the children chasing a dog. And this time, there's something a little skew with the children. They seem a little off. They seem a little weird. They look like zombies, basically. Well, we didn't get a close enough look. It's not a, like, yeah. So, they go to the the church they try to enter they can't get in it's locked but then a whole bunch of people enter show up show up with With guns guns. blazing yeah now dogs show up a bunch of uh doberman pinchers just show up out of nowhere being menacing yeah so you've got your your two conflicting groups you've got the townsfolk showing up 
with shotguns ready to go. And then at the church, you've got the Doberman Pinscher showing up ready. And they're both ready for action. Indeed. And it's fucking dude from Ghostbusters 2. Vigo. Vigo is somehow in this movie. And actually, I love it. That's like a great detail of the movie. <laughs> like, yeah, it's like it's fucking Vigo. I ain't saying shit about it other than I love it. Yeah, other than I love it. So they, they're very angry. And he goes, and I, I do believe he utters, where are our children? And then they fucking leave. They fucking hightail that shit out of there. After dogs attack and they can't handle dogs with their shotguns, modern devices, right? Animals, that kind of thing. Right, right. They so it's it's all it's starting to become very surreal quick, and they go back to the hotel room, and shit starts to get more and more strange as they progress. She's very convinced that she is in a Sutter Kane. Yes, she is the book. one who is most involved in what's going on. Because the reason why is she is the editor of the books. So she knows intimately all of the details of this world where Sam Neill's character is very but yet cynical. at this point we don't we don't know that the novel has been finished. We don't know what's been written for these particular right. characters. But the, the the Hobbs End is the town's name, and he writes exclusively in this town. And so it's very much like reminiscent of Stephen King, in that it's a shared universe. And she recognizes all of these various aspects from other parts of different books. And she's explaining to Sam Neill that, hey, this person is a psychopath that killed her husband with a hatchet, yada, yada, yada. And Sam Neill's still very much like, no, she's a sweet old lady. She wouldn't hurt a fly. Meanwhile, here's her husband handcuffed to her ankle. She's stomping on him on the floor. Weird shit's going on. Right. So it's initially weird, but it, we're not explicitly told or shown that it is weird. We just see some weird things unfolding. After that event, things start to fucking kind of go unhinged a little really bit. Really get unraveled, yes. So she decides that she's going to go to this church in the middle of the fucking night. And you know what? Lo and behold, she's invited in. And she meets Sutter Kane again. And not only does she talk with him, but she is introduced into the what will come, and her face is fucking implanted into the finished manuscript of In the Mouth of Madness that's like radiates from the pages onto her face, and she becomes hypnotic with the newfound knowledge of the apocalypse. The cock <laughs> So Sam Neill's like, where the fuck did this broad go? I've got some sexual tension with you. Why are, why are we not exploring that? That's weird. And so he's drives out into the town. He goes to a bar and meets Vigo. And Vigo gives a very foreboding warning. He said, you need to leave now. Of course. Of course, he said to leave earlier, too. Indeed. And he's saying, 
It started with the children, and now it's starting to infect us all. Now, Sam Neill has gotten has gotten sprinkles of something amiss. It started with the crazy man with a fire axe busting through his restaurant window with the fucking weird sheep eyes, saying, oh, "Do man, you read Sutter pupils yeah. in each eye?" That shit was weird, weird, yeah. weird, weird, weird. And the dude says. Do you read Sutter Kane? And he's freaked out. Then he elucidates maybe again where he sees a cop beating the shit out of somebody and says, do you want some? And in that hotel room. It's a reflection of modern times. Indeed. So he starts to, he's very cynical of these dreams, quotation marks. And he's dismissive. Whereas Wall-Eyed Lady is not dismissive. She's like fucking balls deep in like what the actual fuck is going on. Something is amiss here. Where he's still very dismissive of all the events leading up to actually being in Hop's end. So he ends up at the bar with Vigo. Vigo says, hey, it started with the children. Now it's starting to affect us all. And he's still very dismissive. He's getting drunk by his own self. Goes back to the hotel room. Yeah, I mean, booze helps everything. So he ends up back at the hotel room. And wall-eyed lady's there. And she's standing in front of the door. But you know what? Some fucking weird tentacles come out from underneath the fucking Mm -hmm. door. And it's like, what the actual fuck? Now, in the process of this, the painting in the lobby starts to change. It's continually changing. So each time we see it, it's a little more grotesque than the time before. Indeed. So she, he opens the door and she attacks his ass, throws him through the the door of the hotel room itself. With great force, man. <laughs> Wait, just amazing great force. And he runs and escapes. He's he's freaked out. Tries to find he tries to check out and get the fuck out of there. But he is led into the basement with the hotel keep and the husband attached to the ankle of the wife. Yeah. And she's fully tentacled out with a fucking fire axe. Like tentacle tits. Yeah. It's what we've got right now. Like some real fucked up Japanese shit. There's Japanese action happening all over. There's some hentai action happening. But instead of like penetration, it's like gruesome axe murder death of the husband. Now, it's interesting that she transforms, but the husband doesn't. It's an interesting thing. But she's He's just along for the ride. Yeah. Yeah, the, the axe murder ride, as we all do. <laughs> I'm, I'm on that ride. Bring so, it on. goes down there, tries to leaves. And as he's leaving the hotel room, there's a fucking weird-ass creature in the greenhouse... Being all scary and weird looking. Which earlier alluded to was in one of these Sutter Kane right. books. Which he was dismissive of. So his world is starting to unravel. Clearly, everything that he thought was real is being challenged. So he gets in the fucking car and hightails that shit out of there. Tries to hightail that shit out exactly. of there. Exactly. He fucking screeches the tires, gets the fuck out. The problem is he gets to a certain point, 
past the old man on the bicycle and he starts his journey all over again and ends up in town with an angry mob right of mutants. Again. He does this. It takes him three times to decide to ram through that fucking audience. Rams through it. Of course, he crashes it because Wall-Eyed Lady is at the very end waiting for him. Uh, can't hit her. Can't hit her, even though she tried to fucking kill him. That happens. Then, he gets abducted, and he ends up at a confessional booth. And he meets Sutter Kane for the first time. And Sutter Kane questions. Well, he met him earlier, I think at the first time they came to the church. Because a few times, there's a few times the door is open and closed, and there was a kid there, and then at the end there was Sutter Kane. But we don't know if that was what the townspeople saw or they saw. Ooh, now we're getting deep. Indeed, I like it. So, so we okay, I'm I am along on this train. So of that, their first interaction is in this confessional booth, which is supposed to be a sanctum, a place of safety and confession. And Sutter Kane is telling him that your world is not what it seems, and the ancient ones are upon us. And he's here as their prophet. Whatever he writes comes true. Is true. Like, he writes reality. And the more people that read it, the more real it becomes. So they have their little dialogue and of course Sam Neill is is an unwitting prophet in this new world and Sam eventually they he gets out and he's confronted with him in real life here he is in this weird fucking ancient place that this church was built on top of the Black Church, I believe, is what it was called. And he's writing his book. Sutter Kane is just typing Wendy. He says, ah, I finished. And now you will spread the word. And not only will you do it, but you're not real. I wrote yeah, you. you're part of this book. You are a character come to real life because I wrote you. And you are the main character in this book, In the Mouth of Madness. And of course, Sam Neill. You don't like, exist in any capacity than what I've writ- written you into this, right? Sam Neill, doing his best Sam Neill impersonation, rejects this idea. It says no. But, and what is the fucking guy's name that plays Sutter Kane? He's like the a German actor. I, would, I don't know. He's a Das Boot. He's very famous. You can see the movie. It's not Udo or Kier or whatever. Not Udo Kier. <laughs> not him. No, no, no. You're all, you're all thinking of that, but it's not And it's him. not Christopher Lambert either. It's not Raiden from Mortal Kombat or Highlander. It's the other guy, the other foreign guy that everyone knows from genre movies. So he, Wall-Eyed Girl, joins him. I like that you pick him from Mortal Kombat other than say Highlander. <laughs> <laughs> it's top of mind because we were just well, talking about but, Mortal you Kombat. You know, I would put him in that priority. Christopher <laughs> Lambert. Mortal Kombat. I feel that that's his most memorable movie. Bless you. For thinking that. I love Highlander and Highlander too. 
actually. But Raiden, Mortal Kombat, because it doesn't even make any like the representation that we get in the in the video. He was games, the biggest star in that movie. Think about that. Your selling point is Christopher Lambert, the star of the 1986 uh, <laughs> Highlander movie, and this is 1994. Are you classing it up by saying Christopher Lambert rather than Christopher Christopher Lambert? It could very well be. <laughs> I'm be, Frenching it up because I—that's what I would go off of is Lambert. Well, so bless you again for saying. Well, that. you know, I—he holds a special place in my heart because I think he's also—he's been in a bunch of great movies, uh, all B movies, but great movies. Mortal Kombat and Highlander were not B movies, so fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm saying outside. All right, beyond that, whatever. We aren't going to think about that because they don't matter. These are the important movies to popular culture as they are today. Yeah. So, anywho's. So, he's confronted with the German Christopher Lambert. And it's revealed to him that he's a character. He rejects this hypothesis. And the Christopher Lambert of Germany, again, says, I can't hold them back. And so evil is being unleashed, and he is designated the apostle of this new reality, this apocalypse trilogy. And he, of course, he rejects it, and it's and it's in a John Carpenter way. So it's shot in a very like interesting, cool way. It's music is fucking crazy, amazing, and it's this introduction of like quick shots so dude Sutter Kane like unzips himself like unfolds up like tears himself apart I guess into pages, pages of a book yes. and he's staring and then wall-eyed lady begins to narrate the scene as it's unfolding and he's living this as she's talking about it and they try to run and she says no I've already seen the ending of the book I'm my fate is sealed. She's not running. So he starts running down this fucking crazy, amazing hallway. That's like, I don't even understand it. Like the almost, I would say that, you know, unlike the rest of the movie, it is like the hallway in a ship of some starship and hellraiser combined in the ship of some starship. Why did I say that in the hallway of some starship? Yes. So like, Futuristic. It's definitely different looking than anything else that you've seen in the movie so yeah. far. We have now taken this and removed ourselves from what his perception of reality is and now entered Sutter Kane's mm-hmm. reality. And then we start to see these Lovecraftian creatures in Chasing pursuit him. of him. And it's like a fucking wall of tentacles and teeth and slime and eyeballs. Very wet looking things. It's very Cenobite meets Lovecraft shit happening. And he's running with this fucking book, this manuscript. Very uh, apostle from Berserk looking, might add. Indeed, yes, I agree with that. So he runs, he trips and falls, and then just magically he ends up on a road in the middle of nowhere with a manuscript in his hand. And it's a cornfield and a road in the middle of nowhere. And a kid enters in on the same bike but it's a kid this time, not the old man. And he says, point me to the nearest road. 
Now, he thinks he's back in reality. He runs off. He ditches the manuscript on the side of the road. It says, fuck this shit. And ends up in a hotel room where a new manuscript is delivered to him. again. And he doesn't even, he's like, no one knows where I am. So he ditches that again. And he ends up back in New York. And he sees the fact that this dude is dangerous, that this world, this apocalypse, is very much a real thing. And he's back talking to Charleston Heston saying, But he's been there before. Boom! Bam! This is old news. And he's reliving it. He thinks he's arriving fresh before the book has been published to stop the oncoming apocalypse. Because what Sutter Kane reveals... What he reveals to Sutter Kane is the more people that read it, the more real it becomes. And that is the the projection that this evil, this ancient Lovecraftian evil has been able to take hold because the more people read it, the realer it is, the more real it becomes and it starts to overtake actual reality. And is this a metaphor for the Bible? could be the more people read it the more real it becomes it could very well be it could be that exact thing so he ends up talking to charleston heston and he's saying hey your assistant that i sent that you sent with me she's gone and he goes what assistant yeah i sent you you with anyone and that's when his shit starts to break down so in the beginning of the movie we didn't mention this the beginning of the movie is him in an insane asylum. And you know what? And I wanted to say it like the beautiful part about this is when we were watching it, we were watching it at my place and I threw it in my PS4 as the Blu-ray player. Choice, we were watching yeah. it on. And for some reason it wasn't doing any of the dialogue. So we were getting the sound effects. We were getting everything else. The only thing that we weren't getting was the actual dialogue that was happening. And since I had never seen this movie before, I didn't know that there was something amiss, something about that. But I really felt like if this is a movie called in the mouth of madness, I feel like if we start watching this movie, we're in an insane asylum and we're seeing these people talking, but we aren't hearing what the dialogue is that would only contribute to like the feeling of being in quote unquote, the mouth of madness. Right. So it was really cool. So I was actually kind of disappointed to find out that that was not how the movie was made and that there actually was dialogue. So what threw me for a loop is I had watched Prince of darkness and that is actually the entire intro of that movie is them with no talking, but no dialogue. It's just the music and that's it. So I initially didn't catch it right. I'm like, this seems a little odd because we had the musical cues through. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Everything else was there except for the dialogue. So anyways, in the beginning of the movie, he's in an insane asylum with all these crosses and shit all over his face written in charcoal, presumably. And he tells his journey to where how he got to where he was. So he sees Charleston Heston. Charleston Heston says, I sent you alone. And we published this six months ago and the movie is about to come out. And Sam Neill is absolutely like crushed because 
he can't stop the reality that's about to unfold. So he goes, he leaves there, and he sees someone coming out of a movie theater, and he fucking hits him down with an axe in the same way that he was almost crushed down by the dude in the beginning of the movie. Foreshadowing. Foreshadowing. He ends up in the movie theater at the end. That's Kitty saying hello. And he's watching himself relive all the scenes from the movie. Laughing all the time. Laughing fucking hysterically. And that's how the movie ends, is him laughing. Now, I know there's an alternate cut where... She pops up behind him. There's an alternate cut where tentacles come up from the popcorn. We never get to see any of that in the theatrical cut of the movie. I think it ends just fine. Yeah, both of those I was just going to say I feel are unnecessary. Unnecessary for the film. So, so you know, in The Mouth of Madness, we kind of went through the whole absurd plot of it as as far as, you know, how the movie proceeds. As far as where it takes place in the Apocalypse Trilogy or its particular thing, it's what if you were the last sane person on Earth and everyone else is mad, in essence. Uh, it is the third of the of the trilogy. It's probably my third. It's number three for me, obviously. I, I think it's for you, too. The, right? Yeah. It, it has a lot of, like, Sam Neill... I think is a is a, an amazing actor and he did a really good job with what he had worked with but I really feel like this is John Carpenter's slow decline as far as like quality of work that he does and maybe the reality is that everyone else is caught up with him and is starting to overtake what he's presenting on screen I'm not really sure I just that's, that's a nice thing to say <laughs> <laughs> I you know I don't know what it is but it's you know I think the 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 effects are fucking stand out. Again, it's it's a John Carpenter thing. There's only one or two computer generated things in the whole movie. Uh I remember initially seeing it and being really fucking freaked out. Like it like when I was younger, like cuz I I think I saw it when it first came out and I was like, "What the fuck is happening?" Like questioning reality and like I was re- like Sam Neill when I was younger, really sold his performance. Like I was really like in desperation along with him when I initially saw that movie and just the fucking freaky weird shit. Well, yeah, a lot of weird shit. And I really like, I just, I really love that. And that's, you know, one of the things that I appreciate. Yes, it is ranked number three for me in the trilogy, but I still really like the movie regardless of, you know, maybe it's effectiveness and what it's, saying uh but the weird scene at the end where he's being chased by those fucking and you just get those flashes of like what the creatures are like it's really effective yeah it must have been a real bummer for the effects team too because here they spent all this time on these grotesque cthulhu-y type creatures which you barely get to see because it's dark and you just get a quick flash of them but that's probably what adds to it being scarier because you don't really see what it is. I agree. I think a lot of times what is effective for horror, and I think this goes to an Alfred Hitchcock thing where he always 
drove suspense and horror through what you didn't see. It was all implied, like fear you know, of the unknown. Like in Psycho, you never saw any of the like the stabbing. You just saw the shadow of the stabbing in that shower scene, and it's like one of the most famous scenes ever, right? And for this, you just get the glimpses of that mad horror, like those fucking weird creatures. And still to this day, I don't really know. I haven't really seen creatures like that in any other kind of movies. Like it really is its own. There was something like that in the void. It really reminded me of it. I don't know that I've seen the void. It's on Netflix. Okay. I guess I'll have to look into it. So, well, it's a a, a HP Lovecraft inspired horror. So I guess that would make sense. Uh, But yeah, it, you know, the performance of Sam Neill is really what carries the entire thing, but it's still very much a John Carpenter movie. Again, he, it's, John Carpenter with guitars this time and not synths or too many synths. But the rest of the the actors, they're really, they don't necessarily grab you in the same way. Uh, it really no. is a, a B movie in the rest of the way. And like Sam Neill really classes up the whole thing and like, you know, weird cameos and, and the creatures are interesting and they're way more interesting than the, incidental people and maybe that's on purpose maybe the the point being is that the other people don't matter and it's the the scent of i don't know if he goes mad or if he goes sane yes i was gonna say something about that it could go either way it's either the last sane person or the only crazy person right and that is left kind of ambiguously or left ambiguous and i like that about that movie i like anything that it isn't a neat boxed up presentation. Here's the story. Here you go. And in that, I really enjoyed it. And, you know, for a movie in 1992 or whatever the fuck it was, it holds up. Well, no, it's very much of its era. I'm not going to say it holds up well, because that's a matter of opinion. I would say it's a product of John Carpenter's time, because I, I feel like he has a very distinct style that he does. And, when we go from like 78 and then we kind of like tr- go all the way to 1992, like the movies look a little bit better, but they all kind of still have like, they're all written kind of the same way. The secondary characters all feel the same in a lot of the ways. And so, you know, again, as I said, like I think the rest of filmmaking caught up to maybe some of the s- smarter things that he was doing and stole from him and then did it better, which is what you want to do ultimately. At the end of the day, you you always want things to be better and to progress. I don't know. Money and intent could have a big thing to do with it too because look at The Thing. It was a big budget movie that was like a blockbuster. Yeah. While In the Mouth of Madness was not meant to be a blockbuster of any sort and didn't no. have a bunch of money sunk into it. So you see something like The Thing that holds up well today and then compare it to something like In the Mouth of Madness, which does not hold up in the same way. <clears throat> no, not in the same way. And you're right. Uh, you know, we talk about a little bit about timeless movies and how certain movies hold up better than others, and maybe it's because they very correctly don't date themselves by having like flashes of pop culture or the car. There's like no cars. Like you know, We talked about The Predator. It's a perfectly timeless movie. It could happen today. Yeah, I mean, clothing-wise, there's nothing, you know, the styles aren't, you know, represented at all. So, you know, 
some movies age well because of that, or some are, are so different and weird and so distinctly their own world that they're not defined by an era. Anyways, if you look at Blade Runner, movies made 1982, uh, I, I believe the same year in the same season as The Thing, and it's one of those ageless movies. It's a weird because it's noir, it's futuristic, not it's not cyberpunk. It's you know like noir, future noir kind of thing. But when you watch those, the remaster of it, it looks like it could have been made today, except you know Harrison Ford is baby and Sean Young is like absolutely gorgeous in that movie. But you know, as we're saying, in the mouth of madness doesn't get the ability to create a whole brand new world from scratch where it exists without the, you know, attachments to the, that present day world. It's very much style wise, the clothing, the cars, even the, the pop culture it's referencing. They do a lot of Stephen King references. It really dates it. Cause Stephen King really had his huge heyday in the late eighties and early nineties. Like the, the mm-hmm, big, like yeah. the stand and like, the first initial wave of like the film adaptions of his work, a lot of them were shit, but like that's really when he was huge. And so just in the fact that it references that really dates the movie. As far as the core concept goes, I love it. The HP Lovecraft elements. I love now. Have you read any Lovecraft stories or anything like that? No. So I've read a few, and there's there's a really big struggle in the horror sci-fi world with H.P. Lovecraft because the reality is that he's a a racist, like like in a not quite a Nazi kind of way, but like kind of that way. Like he kind of believed in eugenics and like race superiority and shit like that. And it was a, it's a terrible, ugly side to otherwise a completely brilliant writer. Just this conceptualization of you know, what horror could be. I think he did the same thing that Edgar Allan Poe did for his time. And we still talk, you know, we talk about Thulu references or HP or Lovecraftian references. And that has a very specific context and a meaning. And a lot of it is like questioning your sanity. I guess Poe does that too. Uh, and so that, that movie, The Mouth of Madness, takes some of those elements without having the baggage of... Lovecraft himself attached to it so we can enjoy his themes without having to feel weird about you know giving praise to what was in essence a terrible person and that's an interesting thing and you know we talk about I don't know if we maybe we did on this like how they've tried to make at the mountains of madness which is what in the mouth of madness is a play on uh and it's been stalled every time they can't it can never get a a lift and actually be made in real life. So, and, and its main issues is because of all the baggage that goes along with the writer. So I think In the Mouth of Madness is a great way to explore those themes without having the controversy of the particular author at hand. What Whatever their thoughts in conclusion of. I probably don't need to see it again. I think once is enough for me. <laughs> and I'll, you know what? I, I agree with you. It's not, I'd, I bought the remastered edition. I was really excited to see it. Uh, it's going to sit on my shelf. It's not going to be something that I really pursue. 
uh, I think, you know, if I want to say a meal fix, like he's got a ton of other movies that he's absolutely phenomenal in. Uh, I'm thankful he was in the movie because I don't think it would have worked without him. Uh, So, yeah, that's all I have. Until next time, this is Eric. Kyle. Bye. Bye.